Church, good morning. Man, what a good day. Happy Advent. Happy December. Merry Christmas. We're getting there? Yeah? Okay. This is the best time of year, friends. Hey, if you've got a Bible with you, open up to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17 today. We're going to focus specifically on verse 14, though. Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10, though. When you get there, say, you got it. Man, that's good, guys. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. Just a quick little announcement, maybe maybe encouragement. Um, Your staff and then several members of the congregation... Um, put this little thing together for you. It's, it's a labor of love. It's a, it's a Christmas devotional for you to use starting today. Um, you've, you've got a couple of them over here hanging out right at this entrance here. Grab one for your family. I'd encourage you, don't, don't grab like one for each person in your household. Grab one for your family. What a great time, like especially during the Christmas season to gather together around the word. Um, and you got one right over here underneath the Christmas tree. Two, be sure to grab one at the end of service. All right. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. If you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word, please? Once we get to verse 14, would you read verse 14 aloud with me? This is what the Lord, the Spirit of God, has to say to us today through his prophet Isaiah. Starts as this, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, a king in Judah at the time. Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I I will not ask. I'm not going to do that. And I won't put the Lord to the test. And he said, the Lord through Isaiah, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Verse 14, would you read that aloud with me? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. This is God's word to us this morning. You may be seated. So Christmas time, we get a very rich selection of songs that we get to hear, especially around this time of year. It's around this time, just like right after Halloween, um, Mariah Carey breaks out from her Uh, her hibernation mode, and 
you start to hear that amazing song, All I Want for Christmas is You, right? You've probably been hearing it since November 1st. You probably heard it 11 times yesterday. You know how much money she makes off of that annually? Annually, one song, so much revenue, so many royalty checks for it. $3 million a year. Don't you wish you wrote a hit? Yeah? Good night. Fewer songs, um, fewer songs ring in our ears. Um, fewer songs invoke a sense of nostalgia more than Christmas songs. I know that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, how many kids are in here today? I don't want to be Tim the Destroyer of Dreams today. You know as well as I do, parents, that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer's presence is questionable at best, right? But I remember, I remember hearing these songs, Mike. And, and when I hear them, like, I think back, man, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers action figures and really tasty hot cocoa and times with my uncle and aunt. Like, that's what we remember when we hear those songs, isn't it? Nothing brings about nostalgia more than Christmas songs. I'd submit to you, though, that we don't need any more help in being distracted in this life. In fact, we need help keeping the main thing the main thing. And so we're going to be looking at some of the big songs of the season, especially that help us to that particular end. And so the song that we're looking at today, maybe just in brief, is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It, it goes back all the way to the 12th century. And we just sang this first verse, didn't we? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I'm not singing it. That would not be good. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. You notice it doesn't have like the catchy, like, hit that all I want for Christmas is you has. But so many of these Christmas hymns and carols have this rich theme of dominion and glory and majesty that really help us lock in and center on why we do what we do. So we're talking about Emmanuel today. We know a lot of us that grew up in the church world, we, we have an idea. We, we probably know, you could probably tell me, uh, pronounce it in the Hebrew, Emmanuel, which it's a Hebrew name. You could probably tell me who we're talking about. But what are we to do with that? That's what the passage is, is helping us understand today. So if you're taking notes, you'll see that there are three different um, ways. I want to look at 7.14 specifically. So we're looking at the miracle of Emmanuel first. The miracle, the sign, the promise. Number two, the man, Emmanuel. Make no mistake that the Jesus that we worship is also a man that kind of gets lost on us when we talk about big, transcendent nature of God. But then finally, we'll also, we'll also look at the meaning of Emmanuel as well. 
So let's go all the way back to, to the beginning, talking about the miracle of Emmanuel. This one verse, 714, is found in chapter 7, which is two big prophecies from Isaiah's lips, God sending it through his prophet to the king of Judah at the time. Two big prophecies. And there's a lot of turmoil and fear in the Judean kingdom at the time. It's found, though, in a massive 66-chapter work where either Isaiah or his scribe wrote down big key themes like judgment for sin is coming. And it's not just with Judah. It's with the entire world. Everyone is on notice now. It doesn't end there. Those sin will cease. God promises to end it ultimately and finally in someone whom he calls a servant, his suffering servant, who through his suffering ushers in a brand new world. Like where Isaiah 9 says, there will be no end to his government or to his peace. Though in a destructive, chaotic world, there's a day coming when there will be no more tears, pain, or sorrow. A rescuer is coming. It's the beatific vision. It is a utopia. It's living, breathing, peace on earth. And that's where we find ourselves in the passage today. 7.14, it starts with, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who's the one that is speaking through the prophet? It's the Lord himself. If you notice so, when you go to verse 10 and you go to 14, you'll notice the Lord looks a little bit different there. 714, it's like capital L, lowercase everything else. Whereas in verse 10, you see Lord in all capital letters. What's the point? What's the big deal there? God has no problem flexing his might and majesty, but he's telling Ahaz, this king who's faithless and fickle, I'm not just powerful. I'm also the personal covenantal God that promised himself, pledged himself to his people. So that's the one that's speaking to him today. You see throughout the passage, though, when you read about the king's life, you see how weak he is. You see how fragile and frail he is. I'm willing to wager most of us, I like to see myself as the hero of the story way too often. I don't like to think of myself as more like an Ahaz rather than Isaiah how Isaiah preached boldly and confidently. As Ahaz is meant to lead an entire nation and he looks good on the surface. He looks healthy on the surface. Underneath, however, there's something, there's conflict going on and his heart is so far from the one that he pledged his life to. He is representative of what's going on in Judah at the time. When you go to Isaiah chapter one, God starts to talk to Isaiah and he tells him, my people do all sorts of things for me. They celebrate all these seasons, they offer their sacrifices and he tells them, they don't mean a lick to me. 
because their hearts are far from him. But only if we would come together and reason together. Though their sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. We wouldn't want to be like Ahaz. How many of us are like Ahaz, though, meant to be an example, an expression of justice and righteousness in the world? We obviously wouldn't want to be an example of weak faith. He's supposed to embody the very will of the king that he bends his knee to, the maker of heaven and earth. But watch how God is so kind to him. Even though you're weak, verse 11, a sign of the Lord to you, let it be as deep as Sheol to the depths of the grave, to hell itself, or even to where God lives. I don't care what the kind of sign is. I want to do it. I want to pledge to you and show you why I'm worth following and listening and trusting. He responds with, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. It sounds pious. But he's a fraud. Yahweh, recognizing Ahaz's weakness, what he does, he gives him a reason to believe. And so when you read in the Bible, when you read sign, that should signal to you cosign. Does it make sense? Parents, how many of you have co-signed on a loan before for your kids? Show of hands. Mm. Look at all these fiscally responsible people. <laughs> when they're asking you to co-sign on a loan, what are they doing? If they're a good kid, they're asking you, hey, I just need a little bit of help. If they're a bad kid like Tim in his 20s, they just want a little more help on the loan. That's what, that's what they're asking for. When you see sign, though, it should signal to you cosign. Can you say that with me? Sign signals to cosign. What's he saying? He's, he's trying to give evidence. It's, it's like extra collateral. It's an extra applicant on the notice of the loan. And so you see this all throughout the Old Testament we know Moses, he has this staff and he performs all of these miracles, also called signs, so that the people of Israel and even Pharaoh himself might recognize and bend the knee to Yahweh. You see it later on in Judges with Gideon, chapter 6, where he fleeces God. God gives signs so that men might follow him. It's an extra oomph to his message. You see it later on with Jesus and all of these signs and signals pointing people to his message of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so what was the sign that Yahweh was giving to Ahaz? Is this the first like commercial billboard set up in, in Jerusalem at the time? Is he sending him a text? Is, this, is, he, is he sending him to his Instagram? He says, behold, 
The virgin shall conceive. She shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Scholars want to wrestle with the meaning of this particular passage. We, we could see either one of two potential interpretations for this. Either one, there's someone in Ahaz's house who is a virgin right now, not yet betrothed, but one day eventually might be, and then boom, she gets married and has children. Why? Because it would be weird if a virgin gave birth to a baby. You following me so far? And it follows at least from this passage that maybe that's what he's talking about. But when we read through the New Testament, we read it with new eyes. There's this thing that happens with prophetic literature. You, you, you hear a thing, you hear a promise, but then you see how it's fulfilled and the impact and power of it is amplified. It's way more than what we could expect or imagine. He moves us outside of the conversation with Ahaz and Isaiah and pushes us forward to the New Testament to see that there would one day be a virgin girl giving birth to a baby boy. And so this is who he is, at least in part, the, the miracle of, of Emmanuel. But then we have to wrestle with a question, the first question would be, can we trust him? Will you trust him? This Emmanuel, this God, will you trust him? Will you follow him? And friends, this is where good news is found. Notice that it's Isaiah who's purified in the last chapter. In chapter six, he receives this amazing calling from God but the good news of Emmanuel, it's not coming for, it's not coming for Isaiah. It's coming for the self-righteous, fearful, fickle, weak, faithless Ahaz. The good news of a rescuer isn't coming to the one that God makes righteous already. It's coming for the skeptic or for the religious. And that's who it comes for today. It's a good thing for us to celebrate the good news of Jesus. And we don't do that just on Sunday mornings during Christmas. We worship him every Sunday morning because since Jesus has come, that changes everything. But Jesus sends us. He sends us and calls others through our witness to trust him. Folks, just like Ahaz, just like you and me. And he beckons them to trust him. He beckons those that are in lonely exile, who long for comfort and want shadows to be dispelled. He wants those who are broken up about the holiday season, who spend it lonely and tired. He wants them to find comfort. 
And so then he points the sign out for us and he points us to Christ. He points them to Christ. Will you trust him? Will you call others to trust him? So we see the miracle of Emmanuel. Look at the, look at the man, Emmanuel, as well. We, we, we hear the sign. I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Look at the kind of man that Emmanuel is. We get hints of it. We get, we get hints of what he's like through the context of the passage, don't we? He's going to have a moment of conception. That's good news. Typically, people do have a moment of conception. You see later on, he's going to get hungry. Isaiah's describing the kind of baby food that this guy is going to eat. Yogurt and honey is delicious. It's good. It's good for you. This Messiah figure has good taste. His palate's awesome. He's going to have a moral compass and he's going to learn how to navigate that moral compass. He has a hometown. We don't see this in this passage, but we see it in Micah later on. He's a contemporary prophet of Isaiah. Micah 5, 2 and 3, he, he mentions that Bethlehem will be his place of birth. And so all of his goodness, all of Jesus's goodness and power and majesty and worth we can forget that Jesus is a man too. As much as he is God, he is also man. That doesn't mean that he's like the Arnold Palmer of deities. He's not 50% God and 50% man. You know, the Arnold Palmer, right? 50% lemonade, 50% sweet tea. Nothing of the sort. Instead, he's more like my friend, Vladimir, Vladimir, he's from Ukraine. What a great guy. Vladimir moved here just a couple years ago after the Ukrainian wars broke out. Since then, he's been working hard to plant a church here to reach Ukrainians. While he was in Ukraine, that's the language that he grew up with. He speaks Ukrainian like a boss, like he's natural at it. But when he moved here, learning English is just difficult, y'all. Is he bad at it? It's okay. But he has to work at it. Can you imagine the infinite creator who spoke worlds into existence, learning how to walk like a 14-month little boy or maybe like my 14-month little girl who doesn't bend her knees while she walks, but she toddles still. Can you imagine the condescension, the humility that he expresses? He has all of these things. He has an appetite. He has a hometown. He has a beginning in the intimate humanity sense but he's also the kind of guy that when he works, he brings blessings with him. The virgin conceives, the virgin bears a son, and she calls him Emmanuel. He's not just limited, even in his limitedness, even in his having to learn how to work out being human, blessing still comes with him. 
And the kind of work that he does is that of ruling and reigning. It's a kind of leadership and kingly posture that brings peace wherever he goes. And this is a big deal. Does all the things that a man would do, but he does them better. But even that's not all. So when we hear all of these things that Isaiah is telling us about this man named Emmanuel, why would he go to such lengths in describing who he is in just one verse? Make no mistake, the the gospel, and I mean this, the gospel of Isaiah is the most explicit book in the Old Testament detailing who Messiah would be. Why does he spend so much time describing for you and me what he's like and what he does? It's because he wants you to know him. He doesn't want you to just trust him like I know from afar that he does good. He wants you to know him intimately, deeply. And so that's the second question. Will you Know him, not just as an individual that you can collect facts about or as a concept, but really knowing him. Knowing him like he's someone that wants to get to know you. Knowing him as a friend, knowing him as a brother. He doesn't just demand to be known. He also makes the way for us to know him too. And the sovereign Lord of creation, he comes to our homes. He comes to our earth, speaking the same language, wearing our skin, wearing our clothes, wearing our weakness, and carrying our shame on what would be our cross so that we can be reconciled to him. Not only so that he might identify with us, but that we might be connected and reconciled and welcomed into his family. Do you know him? You can trust him and not know him well. This is a summons to intimate relationship with Emmanuel. You want to know the meaning of Emmanuel, though? That's the final thing. God with us is so much more than just a blessing. Again, we don't get that until we read the New Testament later on in Matthew 1 and 2. We learn that Mary's son, Jesus, he's the one that Isaiah promised. But the rest of the New Testament writers, they love talking about the power and majesty of Jesus. When you read John, John says that he was with God and is God too. John 5 Jesus gives life just like his father gives life. John, later on in that passage, he says, he will judge the living and the dead just like his father. Colossians 1, Jesus was involved in creation just like his father. Matthew 1, Jesus would save people from their sin as if he were God. Philippians 2, I see you, Drew. Philippians 2, he would be worshiped as God when knees bow and tongues confess that Jesus is Lord. It 
It's like what the old creed said, God is with us. Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Do you remember the the very last scene of the Avengers Age of Ultron? It's not the best movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You can probably just wipe it from your your memory. It's not a good movie. Save the the last scene. You remember it? Big old purple muscular dude named Thanos. He's locking on his infinity gauntlet by which he'll take over the world. And he says, fine, I'll do it myself. If there was anything, I think this is the only point of like where Jesus and Thanos could actually agree on something. Okay? Fine, I'll do it myself. Real rescue, real joy, real forgiveness, real life, real power to live today, real strength. It doesn't come through obedience to all of the things that God has called people to because we're still in our fallen state without someone interceding on our behalf. In the Old Testament, God gave plenty of leaders. It's not a matter of not having people to lead them from point A to point B. Everyone, like what what Dave read earlier today, all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory and goodness. And so we need someone on the outside of our system to come in and interject themselves. It's not a matter of not having good truth. God sends messengers with inspired messages to kings and to peoples, calling them to repent. They don't just need more information, though. They need a brand new heart. We need brand new hearts. So all these people and all these promises throughout the Old Testament, they're just shadows. And if we trace them all the way back to their source, where the light is coming from, it's casting down the the, the figure, they all point us back to Jesus. They all point us back to one that's called God with us. And so for us, what does it mean when we say God is with us? It means that your rescue from your sins has never come from you. You have never been good enough, but you have been loved enough by one who wanted to suffer in your place. Jesus justifies you through his death and resurrection. God with us means that your religious life is not the same as knowing and trusting a risen savior. God with us means that we can have radical confidence in this life. God with us means that we never have to ask him to join him to be here with us. We can simply acknowledge his presence. God being with us means that we live in light of his presence being here with us now. And so we live in light of Coram Deo. I want to be holy. I want to please him. Not because he's far off, but because he's here the most special person that we have here. Visitors are great. I'm glad that you're here. The most important person here present today is Jesus. 
God with us means that he is here. And that's the biggest promise that the scriptures afford. God promises that we get him. We get him forever. We can know him not at a distance. We could trust him not at a far. Charles Spurgeon, he said it like this, Emmanuel, or God with us, God with us in our nature, our very nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and in advent splendor. So he is fully man, and he is fully God. And if he is, the final question is, will you worship him? Will you treasure him more than traditions and tinsel and trees this holiday season? Will you grab a hold of him even in the midst of your grief and pain this holiday season? Final verse from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It reads this. We didn't sing it today. But O come, O branch of Jesse's tree, whoever this Messiah would be, he would come from, Je- from Jesse or David's lineage and he would rule and reign like a good king. O come, O come, O branch of Jesse's tree, free them from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell your people save and give them the victory over the grave. Christ is the great king that was promised to us to lead us to freedom in life. And he is with us. And him who the prophets pointed to. And if that's true, then we trust him. It's he who came as a man so we can know him. And at the same time, he's God. So we can trust him. Will you this holiday season? Let's pray. Father, this holiday season, we don't want just nostalgia. We want a healthy dose and healthy reminder of why we get to live and sing and dance and have joy with freedom, limitless forever. It's because Jesus came and Jesus changes everything. fickle and frail and when our feet frail or fail us I pray that we would trust you when it's hard to imagine you as weak and being able to sympathize with our weaknesses I pray that we would lean in and know you as someone that is gentle someone that's more than just sympathetic, someone that knows everything that we've gone through. We know you as friend of sinners, 
we would know you as the one that binds up the brokenhearted. We know you as physician and healer. We know you as Prince of Peace. We would know you as counselor and mighty God. And that we would treasure you above all. Jesus, we love you. Our lives are for you. Thank you for coming. And we look forward to the day that you return. Help us be faithful until then. In Christ's name, amen.